0: We're like, okay, what if someone throws like a big, like, lamb shank in this bin? What will happen? So, like, we built that test, and we think about like making an odorless experience. That's something that's really important. So, like, we built like the stinkiest food mix you could possibly imagine. It's like garlic and raw shrimp and kimchi, and like we put it all in a bag, and like we put those machines in conference rooms where we're working, and. If we could not smell it when we're sitting in this closed conference room, then we know it's good to go.
1: Hey folks, I'm Connor Gon and welcome to Consensus in Conversation, a podcast where we're talking to the innovators, entrepreneurs and thought leaders who are committed to building successful businesses that also help us build a better world. Here's a million-dollar question for you this week. How do you encourage people to make better choices? It's not a rhetorical question. For many product designers and marketers, it really is the question behind all the other questions about how business and technology can help us create a healthier, cleaner, and more abundant future. All the amazing green tech in the world won't have much impact if we haven't done the work on figuring out how to get people to use it. One thing we often hear, decrease friction. Make the new behavior you're encouraging as easy to adopt as possible a natural part of existing patterns of behavior. It's easier said than done. Well, maybe it is that easy for some. We're talking this week with a genuine master of product design philosophy who's built some really impactful companies. I say that with some confidence because full disclosure, I'm a longtime user of his products. And I suspect a lot of you are too. I'm really stoked to announce this week's guest is Matt Rogers. Matt is an engineer, entrepreneur, founder, and all-around tech wizard whose fingerprints are right there in the DNA of some truly world-changing products. In fact, as we all get into, there's a pretty good chance that you're listening to this show on something that he helped create. He designed products for major names like Apple and Google and became a founder himself with Nest. And now his most recent venture, Mill, is a game-changing at-home system for better dealing with food waste. Now, I've got a Mill composter at my house. It's a beautiful addition to the kitchen. And after a lengthy tournament-style bracket on Instagram, she was christened Constance the Composter. She's helped us to reduce our trash and also the associated rodents outside the house. And her addition to the family was so seamless that I now can't imagine not having a composter. But less than one year ago, I had no intention of ever being that guy. So that, my friends, is great product market fit met with brilliant product design. Clearly, I'm a huge fan of Matt and his work, so it's an absolute treat to have him on the show today. Let's jump into it. Thanks so much for being here today, Matt. I'm really excited to talk. Me too. Thanks for having me. All right. So let's just start at the very beginning. Tell us a little bit about yourself. Where are we from?
0: So I grew up in a small town in Florida, Gainesville, which is like a college town in Florida, uh, in the middle of the state. And actually, it was a really cool place to grow up in that kind of quiet, rural suburban, but had a big university. So I had a lot of access to engineering resources and learning how to do research and robots and like things that at least kids in rural Florida normally probably didn't get to have access to. Right. So
1: this was... A career portended early on.
0: It's funny you should say that. So I was one of those rare folks who, like, as a child, knew what I wanted to go do. And for my 13th birthday, my grandparents took me on a trip to California to visit San Francisco and the Bay Area. And part of that trip was to be able to go to Infinite Loop and visit Apple headquarters, which I guess are not at Infinite Loops anymore. But I, I, yeah, I was one of those kind of folks at a very young age who
1: knew I wanted to go build great products. What was it like to see Apple as a kid? Did you feel the inspiration even then?
0: Oh, yeah, especially like, let's call this is early 90s. So in the early 90s, uh, the Apple headquarters had the original Mac icons that Susan Kerr designed in the lawn, like these giant, like, you know, four or five foot tall sculptures of like the cow dog and the pointer. And it was just like, it felt pretty magical, especially as a kid.
1: That's amazing. Well, do you remember your first computer?
0: Yes. So my first computer was in 1986, Mac Plus, I think, or maybe it was 1987. It was a Mac Plus, which was wow. pretty awesome.
1: Yeah. My father has every Mac our family has ever owned, every Apple product, like at least one copy of everything. So I think our first was... I remember the two GS was the first one I was I was allowed to play with. But he had um, the Mac E before that that he would bring home from work. And like we've got so we've got these computers sitting in the basement. I have no idea what we're going to do with them someday. Like basically a museum to Apple in the basement.
0: Same. I still have my Mac Plus like in a giant Tupperware in my garage yeah, somewhere.
1: That's amazing. Uh, <laughs> I
0: don't know what my, what, if I'm ever going to take it out. But yeah, thirty plus year old computer.
1: So how did you end up at Carnegie Mellon?
0: So I, as a kid, getting involved in engineering that was the path like and my high school physics teacher was the one who really encouraged me to do it and he said that oh, okay like if you want to go build stuff go be an engineer and yeah at the time the other you know, kind of top 10 engineering schools on the on the eastern seaboard are like mit georgia tech illinois carney mellon and i applied to all of them and i visited carney mellon in pittsburgh and i visited like in april which is a really good time of year to visit. If I had visited in like <laughs> yeah. December, I might have chosen George Tech and going to Atlanta.
1: <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it's amazing how those experiences can define an entire life.
0: Oh my gosh. yeah, it actually like just this morning I met with one of my old professors who's the head of the mechanical engineering department now, like we had breakfast together when he was out visiting. and yeah, I've got a really good relationship with the university and I feel like a lot of my engineering culture, and, like, drive to build and work came from my studies at CMU.
1: What was the engineering program like? I have to imagine incredibly demanding, but, like, what was your day-to-day like as an engineering student at Carnegie Mellon?
0: It is, as you say, like, it's quite demanding. It's quite hardcore. It was good preparation for Apple. It's very hands-on. So I think, like, some of the best engineering programs and the one that I was a part of is a lot of building and doing. Yes, like, there's some, like, classroom lecture time, but there's a lot of projects. And, yeah, you know, like, one of the... Early sophomore year projects that I did was like building a small autonomous vehicle, not like a car sized vehicle, like a Lego sized vehicle, but like with what's autonomous and like could do the things you told them to do. And it taught me a lot, not just like how to build stuff. It also has work, work as a team that to build products. It's not just about your skill set. It's about all the complementary skills, whether it's a hardware engineer or a software engineer or a designer. Like, how do you build that community? That gets the project accomplished.
1: Did you have any favorite courses or favorite projects that you did while at school? Oh
0: man, I have a bunch. The one that stands out to me is I think one of my later years. This sounds funny today. Is we had to design an entire CPU, like from from nothing. So starting at the gates, all the way up to like building the logic engine and the full on design. So like uh, I probably couldn't do it anymore. And also like. The twenty-five-year-old skill set of doing it—it's. I mean, technology's probably changed a lot, but like, yeah, I—I I could design a whole CPU. Do you have that in a Tupperware container in your in your garage? Too? <laughs> I probably, have, no? <laughs> I, I probably have had that project somewhere. Yeah, uh, but I, I learned a lot. I learned how to how to build things as a team, and when I think about like my journey out of engineering school into Apple, I mean that right. that was the most like more than any skill. It's being able to work as a team.
1: And that's a the, the, the great segue. I mean, highly coveted company right out of college. How did you get there first? What was that process like? Uh, pure luck, I think, is maybe the the, <laughs> the true answer. I
0: had applied online and like threw my hat in the ring. Th- yeah, This was back in 2004. And this is pre-Apple resurgence. And I got a call back from an engineer on the iPod team. And I have to admit it now, like... I wasn't sure what an iPod was. And one, I thought it was a great place to go and learn, but I didn't realize at the time how important that decision was. I give this advice to a lot of young folks that I meet with. And what you work on is important, but actually who you work with is really important. And that iPod team that I joined as an intern, yeah, they had built... So many things over their careers together. Whether it's early smartphones at General Magic or the early Mac at Apple, it was kind of like the team. I think about learning from the masters of the you know the masters of product development. Like I went to like the the samurai school of product development, and sometimes that samurai school was tough, but uh, I learned learned a hell of a lot.
1: Well, now now that you're where you are in your career, and you see kids sending resumes and you mentor folks early in their careers what do you think they saw in you when they saw your resume that made them say let's get this kid in here i think it was the like the the doing
0: both from like a resume perspective but also like uh how i speak and present my work it is all about the projects and the products and even when i was doing research as an undergrad or grad student it was about the work that i was doing and the results and i think that's yeah the hands on work is really important
1: what were some of your uh stand-up memories from your time at apple whether they're products that you were most proud to launch or best anecdotes from oh my god!
0: oh my god there's so many i think a really <laughs> fun one i was like 21 or 22 at the time so like fresh out of college and my manager or director at the time tapped me on the shoulder saying hey like there's this new project starting up that no one really wants to work on because iPod's a really hot thing and like everyone wants to work on the hot thing. So like, Hey, can you like, can you go and help out on this new thing that's starting up? We don't know if it's going to go anywhere or not, but like give it a shot. And that ended up being the first prototype for the first iPhone and talk about like right place at right time, like being the kind of eager guy that I am. I'm still like this, like most important thing in success is literally just showing up because if you say no, it, like never even start. So yeah, I was the first firmware engineer on the first iPhone and like from traveling to Asia to literally make the first phone call on this like giant
1: printed circuit board. Well, yeah. What did it look like? Explain what it looked like to folks who are listening. So, okay. So if you can imagine like,
0: you know, like one of those green circuit boards, like you'd see in a magazine, like one that's probably like a a monopoly board sized, like this is not iPhone sized yet. Like we were still in like, can we even make this thing work? And, you know, like large rectangular circuit board with wires and chips everywhere. And yeah, like we hooked up like a, a speaker and a microphone and we made the first call from China to my previous business partner, Tony Fidel, uh, when he was back in, in uh, California.
1: Amazing. Yeah. What was the feeling like when that call went through? Did you guys know that you had something special? No, actually. At the time, like, you know, we were pretty excited about it because you know, it was a
0: big breakthrough, a lot of integration required to build something like this. But I think we didn't quite understand at the time how breakthrough and how different this was going to end up being. we like, this is pre-App Store. The App Store didn't exist yet. Right. But I think like six, nine months later, when uh, we had more more of the software built out, more of the user experience built out, like being able to sit in the bathroom at the factory and like browse the internet I was like, okay, I think we got it. This is pretty cool.
1: That's when you knew. That's when
0: we knew. I I, I might have been the first person to ever browse the internet from the bathroom on an iPhone. (laughs) In in the world,
1: actually. That's a claim to fame. We (laughs) We should make sure that gets added to your Wikipedia page after this. When you look at the current generation, I think it's an interesting analogy when we jump into talking about mill when you look at the current generation and all the announcements they've made around sustainability how does that what do you think when you see this this current uh, model i'm really proud of them for for pushing and look it's it is a hard lift
0: and you know having been on the inside at apple the scale required to do anything and like the difference between building a startup and building the first of a kind for anything and then building something that is going to sell hundreds of millions and reliably and predictably, it's like the scale that Apple is doing anything is just, it's astonishing. So when they make commitments to like recycled materials and the energy they're using, it's a really big deal. It's a huge lift. And it's really good to see. And I, I'm, I'm really proud of them for doing it.
1: We're going to talk all about Mill in a second, but I will preface all this early. I'm a very early, very proud Mill customer. And I got the product in the first shipment into, into Washington, D.C., which is home. I can see the heritage of someone coming out of an Apple design background. So talk to us about what that experience was like in terms of who you became as a product designer. You hear all the stories, you know, about jobs being so sensitive to what things touched the feeling of something and the touch, the click, the, you know, how did that incredible learning experience teach us? Yeah, I
0: think the most important thing that I think I learned at at Apple is that building complete products, building whole products. And this is something that is easy to say; like the words make sense, but it's very hard to do. To give like a good concrete example, there were music players before the iPod. There were these Rio MP3 players, and they were okay. Like you could put like a dozen songs on them, but like you had to like rip CDs to like put the MP3s on on the music player. And one, like having a thousand songs in your pocket is a big deal. But also having iTunes in the music store to make it really easy to get music. That's what made it a complete product. And all too often, designers, entrepreneurs, innovators create parts of a product, but they don't build the complete experience. I think about, like, you know, for my, my own journey, there were smart thermostats before Nest, and there are food recycling services today, but no one has thought about it from a, the complete perspective, the end to end, literally from like in the food sense, like from your kitchen counter. All the way back to the farm and all the steps in between and that's something that's very much in the apple dna
1: yeah so walk us through the moment you made the change and what you did next
0: this is back oh it's a long time ago it's 2009 back at apple and i think we were working on the prototypes for the iphone 4 like in terms of like the iterations of design that was a really big deal and we were spending a lot more time thinking about the apps on the platform and video games and those kind of things. I think for me, the light bulb moment for me was like, one, man, there's a lot of talent in this room and there are a lot of challenges. There are a lot of challenges that the world faces. And man, can we apply these skills on problems of great human challenge, whether it's climate or health and those kind of things? And I gave my old mentor and you know my old boss, Tony Fidel, a call and we got together for lunch in Silicon Valley and we're like talking about what are the important things that we can go do and talking about climate and the home. And one thing led to another. We're like, hey, like there's probably something here. Like let's spend time working on it. And that's what eventually led to us starting nest.
1: What were the conversations like? What were the things that you saw? Because they seem so obvious in retrospect, but I, I don't, you know, in the moment they were visionary. So you know, like
0: let's call it pre-2010, right? Like this is like, Uh, early smartphone era, no one had taken the deep integration on the hardware side that the smartphone industry drove and this software layer and new user experience layer and applied it to the home or really to any other product yet. Think about like cars as a good example. Like now every car inside looks like the iPhone, but at the time cars didn't look like the iPhone. And our homes, I was living in a house built in the 1960s Maybe the '70s, and yeah, I had a lot of beige boxes all over the house, and it was pretty pretty obvious to Tony and I, like, hey, like all those beige boxes are going to go away, and the opportunity to apply design and technology to help these very real problems, like home heating and cooling, as an example, was really really obvious to us. And now you're right, like it's inevitable. We're not going to go back to the era of you know those products not working well for us.
1: Yeah. I guess I'm curious to think about it because it's the same, I suspect the same kind of journey at Mill where you're seeking to solve a grand problem or or be a part of a solution towards or towards a solution that, that is something systemic. But to do that, you need to build something that impacts individuals' everyday behaviors and changes their behaviors or you know, modifies and makes easier the kinds of behaviors that one might need to advance towards a systemic change. So as you're thinking about product design and product innovation, how do you build with both of those things in mind?
0: Yes. This actually is the core of my, my personal design philosophy. And I think about like starting mill, actually, like you see the echoes of some of this from the early Nest learnings. That like We can make better products that are more beautiful or easier to use, but at the same time as we do that, can we also make them better for the planet or better for humanity? And yeah, you know, kind of one of my very early lessons as we were starting Nest and learning about the industry, the heating and cooling industry, it was like, oh my gosh, half of home energy is controlled by this little beige box. Like that's nuts. Like, what if we go and save 20%? Like what would that do? And it's like, you know, like planetary scale change. And yeah, you know, it's not just enough to design something and make it better, but like while we're making it better, can we also like leave a trail? Of joy and betterment behind us, and you know, leaving the planet a better place as we do it.
1: Yeah, when did you know Nestle was going to be as big as it became? Like, was there a moment when it was just clear this is going to be a gangbuster product? Yeah, it was probably around year two. We had
0: launched in late 2011, and you know, we were nervous to be honest. We were really nervous, like, oh my god, is anyone going to care? Are we going to announce and like just like yell into the void and just no one's going to know? It's not like Smartphones where like gazillions of people are looking at smartphones every day. Like no one was looking for looking for a new thermostat. You know? <laughs> uh, we got a really good initial reception, both from like press and influencers and folks like, oh, this is this is really cool. But once I'd say like, you know, six months later, once we were shipping and we were in you know a few thousand homes and we were hearing from people how it was delivered it and how much energy they're saving and like how much easier it was to use and they could install it themselves and like like okay like I think we got this like it's working. And I think like the kind of moment of product market fit to use like the term of art, that probably happened like
1: six to nine months after we launched. That's amazing. And how many generations of Nest were there while you were there? Oh my gosh. Over the course of the decade I was at Nest
0: we made four generations of thermostat, two generations of smoke alarm Five generations of camera, an entire security system, tie ins with the smart home ecosystem. It was a good run. And I feel really good about that journey and like the impact it has. And like as a customer today, getting those monthly emails from Nest about how much energy we're all saving, but it feels really good. Were
1: all those products on the original roadmap?
0: Ooh, Tony and I always knew we were going to do more. And I think about like our first investor pitch, you know, the slide deck we made. Yeah, you know, we had a bunch of things on that slide of things we could go do, and some of them we never even ended up doing. I think about like one of the ones on the list was like a home irrigation system, like making it easier to save water with your sprinklers. Or we talked about like, oh, can we do something with a hot water heater? There's a lot of things that we didn't even end up doing, but yeah, like, we did a lot of them actually. That's amazing. You really did. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> uh, but like, like there's a lot of problems like that out there, and when I think about the journey that Harry and I have been on starting mill the last three years. It feels very similar. Deep, deep problem area. Not a lot of accessible and easy to use solutions. We're winding back to 2020 when Harry and I started mill. I didn't realize how bad the food waste problem was, and I'm a climate guy, and I didn't realize how bad it was. It's like eight to ten percent of global emissions. It's like top issue. Like we we should be addressing. And I feel like we're making really good strides in the other areas of the home in our lives with as it respect to climate, like talk about energy. That was my last company, like the car you drive. And I, think, I feel like the EV industry is well underway. And the third is like the food you buy and what you do with it when you're done with the food. And that one felt pretty squishy. So when Harry called me in the early days of the pandemic with this sea crystal for an idea on food waste, God made a lot of sense for us to go do this.
1: What was that call like? What was his initial summary pitch to you? Originally, so yeah, he called me, and this was like in the lockdown days in 2020. So, like, of course, like everyone's
0: answering their phone because no one had anything else to do. Harry Tenabel, my my co-founder at Mill, was on the early nest team with us, and someone I had mentored for the years. And and he called me with this kind of early idea of making it easy to compost at home. And I was like, okay, like, hold on, tell me more about that. He's like, well, today it's really hard. You put these, like, yeah. You know, Buckets or pails on your counter and fruit flies, and which I had experience with. We're like, okay, well, like we could build something. And he's like, maybe we could build something that makes it easy and makes it not gross. And I'm like, okay, let's talk about that. And we spent a good like three months talking about that idea. And it was one of those things that it became very obvious as we got into it that, like the iPod, like the iPhone, like Nest, there are things that came before. And through our research, we learned that. Like in South Korea, there are about a dozen companies that make at-home dehydrators or composters, and they're they're okay. It kind of reminds me of that Rio MP3 player, but they never built a complete product. And not just could we build something better, but we could build a complete experience and actually solve the full problem for someone at home.
1: So, perfect chance to walk everyone through the full meal experience. What is the product? How does it work? And then I want to get back to the why.
0: Yes. So Mill is a full food recycling system for us at home. It takes all the food that we don't eat and makes it easy to get back to the farm to keep it in the food system. It includes everything. It has a new kind of kitchen bin that is beautiful and easy to use and looks like the team at Nest designed it because they did. And what what happens is this bin dehydrates the food you put in. It takes the water out. And food is mostly water. So when you take the water out, it gets small and it gets light, and it doesn't go bad. You know, it's shelf stable when it's dry. So what's cool is we've built this dehydrator that is odorless, but because it's dry, it takes weeks to fill up. So you put your food in overnight, it automatically runs. You wake up the next morning, it's empty. Like where'd it all go? Oh, well, we just the water out. And in the spirit of building a complete product, we also built the entire logistic network and the facilities to take that recycled food and get it back to farms. And our first output pathway is to take the recycled food from our homes and turn it into a feed ingredient for chickens. And we're the first company in the country to ever do that.
1: When I explain it to folks, you know, again, having been a customer, it blows people's mind. <laughs> you know, what do you just, what do you mean? You just put the grounds in a box and then they pick them up and they give another the box. Like, yeah, complete soup to nuts. It's It's a complete product. And, you know, the
0: innovations throughout the experience, like again, like Harry and I learned and we bought a lot of these dehydrators from South Korea and we're like, wow, like this is really cool. And then we learned about the South Korean regulatory environment and they have laws against throwing food away and it's kind of spurred all this innovation. And we're like, OK, so like in the US and North America, we don't have as many of those rules. Only California, Washington, and New York have have rules like that. And I guess more coming. Man, we, we got to make it really easy. So not just make it easy for us at home, but how can we make the full loop easy? The average American household makes about 600 pounds of food waste a year. It's a lot, right? Like several hundred pounds. It's like, what are you going to do with all that stuff? And even, you know, I, I've got a, a garden, we've got vegetable beds out back. Like, I don't even need hundreds of pounds of compost a year. I need like a couple buckets of it. So... You know, like inevitably we decided to build the full loop and make it really easy for that,
1: that whole experience. And how do you look at product market fit here? I mean, it's still a little early on, but I'm curious how you're kind of envisioning that. Yeah, I look at qualitatively and quantitatively.
0: So like from the user experience standpoint, people love it. And one of the questions we ask is like, we ask a customer, like, how would you feel if you had to send this back or give it back to us? And it's like people are like over my... Cold dead body. Can you take this back? (laughs) Like, there's no going back to stinky trash once you don't have it. And as you said, like living with it at home, like man, like it's one of those things that is better than you thought it was going to be. And the other is like we actually we run a lot of surveys and we get really into the details of like what people love, what they don't love, and again, like on the journey, like we did at Apple or Nest, what you build as your first product, you know, things evolve over time and. I think about the generations of product at Apple and the generations of product at Nest, and you get better every year. And we're learning from our customers, and we're already improving the product. We've done like five or six major software updates already to a trash bin. Probably the first time a trash bin's ever received software updates over the air, and yeah, things like making it run a little faster overnight. Like we took about an hour off of everyone's drying overnight. Things, things like that. Like we could. Improve the software in a trash bin, and that's like
1: in itself is pretty crazy. I have to imagine in the world of trash bin innovation, you came across quite a few unexpected moments or uh, funny stories in your product innovation process. So, what are some that stand out? I bet there's a doozy or two. Yeah, I think one of the more important things we learned is to take
0: the friction. You know, you're standing, you've got like a an item in your hand or a plate in your hand. You're like which bin does it go in? And I think everyone has had this experience. Like they're at like a Starbucks and there's the like three bins in front of you. We're like, okay, what goes in what bin? And as part of our design and thinking about the requirements for our first meal experience, this is about food. So we wanted to make it really easy. So our, our kind of philosophy is all food, any food. Like if you could eat it, milk can eat it. And you know today like that friction exists and like, oh, like can I put meat in this bin? We're like, okay, no, we'll take it all. We'll figure it out, and that in itself is really important. Any areas where there's friction and like where you take a mental pause to have to think about something is an area where, for like an iPod, where it ends up in the drawer. So in this case, like our product is bigger than it can fit in a drawer, but it, where it comes back to us and gets returned. So like, you know, it's got to have no friction and it's got to be brain dead easy to use.
1: Yeah. What about any innovation mishaps? How'd you guys? quality control this to make sure that, you know. Oh my gosh. I, I, I wish I could I could put, show the video
0: right now. <laughs> uh, and this is something, again, like talking about learnings over the years from Apple and Nest. We want to put our product through the paces. And yet, like, you know, we're always going to learn things along the way. But like, we've built out this reliability lab where thinking about like the toddler test. So I've got two little kids at home and they love to step on the pedal and open up the lid. And they do it probably like, 20 times a day and some of those like jump on the pedal repeatedly so we built a robot that jumps on the pedal twenty five thousand times and we built a robot where like the lid will slam into a a post over and over and over and over again and we're like okay what if someone throws like a big like lamb shank in this bin what will happen so like yeah like we built that test and we think about like making an odorless experience as something that's really important so like we built like the stinkiest food mix you could possibly imagine. It's like garlic and raw shrimp and kimchi. And like, we put it all in a bag and like we put those machines in conference rooms where we're working. And if we could not smell
1: it when we're sitting in this closed conference room, then we know it's good to go. Whose job was to come up with the the food chemistry to figure out what the smelliest package could possibly be?
0: <laughs> oh my gosh, uh, our engineering team is pretty on it, and, <laughs> uh, and, and and some of the things you learn along the way, like we're like, oh, like more acidic stuff is some of the the breakthrough odors that we experience first. So like, let's try a lot of acidic food. Or one of the things that we learned that was cool is that like when you dehydrate food, the dry spices actually kind of come through. But it's like you know sometimes the dried food that comes out of our bin, it's not completely odorless. It smells like spices. And that's kind of cool.
1: Yeah. Were there any moments in that, in that innovation process where you thought, I'm not sure this is going to fly. Or you had that kind of founder's doubt. I feel like that's inevitable. We all, we've all kind of experienced it at some point. So this might be my,
0: my special ingredient, but like I don't have founder doubt. Okay. And I, th- I think it's one of the things that, has allowed me to persevere through crazy times. Is like I've always assumed that we're going to figure it out. And there were times building the early mill prototypes were like, oh man, like this is really tough. And like I would tell the team, like, hey, I got, I've seen things like this before. Like I think we're going to figure this out. I think I, I, perseverance is inherently a good trait for entrepreneurs. And yeah, I, I always try to find the solution.
1: When I first saw, I think the. Social media posts and the press the press release or articles that were written. My first thought was, how are they going to do that? Not even the product side, but but actually the full circle side, the the complete experience. And, and so you realize you're also running logistics business. I remember like, it's like a, a famous quote that I've heard Jen Hyman say about Rent the Runway many, many, many times. She's not running a fashion business; she's running a logistics business. So talk to us about that realization and how that is different than nest and and how you guys are managing that yeah i mean this was this was not how we started mill we
0: figured this out as we were going when we realized that most of the us doesn't have a green bin for food waste only about five percent of cities have access to green bins for food waste so like, like okay like we gotta we gotta build the rails like we gotta get this material to the right place and we modeled and experimented with a lot of different solutions there and kind of a key learning was around efficiency. And we're never going to be more efficient than USPS or FedEx or UPS like they are designed around logistics. So, you know, we talked to talked to all of them actually and what we learned was that the postal service comes to 99.5% of US homes every single day. Those trucks mostly go back empty and they had literally just built an API service to allow other companies to start kind of interfacing with with the Postal Service network. And it was almost like they had designed this service for exactly someone like us. And we, we spoke to a few senior folks at the Postal Service, including the former Postmaster General. I have to say, like, his Zoom background was the coolest thing I've ever seen. Like, literally, like, hundreds of stamps, <laughs> of all these old stamps throughout, throughout the years. And they're like, yeah, actually, like, we've been looking for someone like you guys. And the postal service has a big sustainability mandate and again like those trucks go back mostly empty so if they're coming to your house anyway couldn't they grab something and bring it back with them and that's really efficient like we're not adding more trucks on the road and think about like the environmental footprint of waste yes it's like there's landfill and landfills are terrible but like all those trucks on the road and the diesel emissions and the wear and tear on our cities and the 4 a m wake ups
1: man like Certainly, we could do something a little different. Was there a moment where... Has there been a moment yet where you've realized how big this is going to get?
0: Oh, I think we know. And that's why we're doing it. Good waste. Number one issue on the drawdown list. There, there, are, there are 8 to 10% of global emissions. it's like there are not many 10% problems left. It's like, you know, 3 or 4x the airline industry. That's, that's massive. And... It's a tractable problem. It's something that we actually can solve. And when I think about like my own journey and frankly the legacy I want to leave, this seems like one of those things we got to do. And there's some really hard stuff that we humanity need to go accomplish. like carbon free energy is hard and that like that scale of deployment is enormous it's like we've almost never done before. or like changing the way we move things around the planet, whether it's cars and trucks or boats or planes some really large-scale change. This change, this change is easy. Like, we just have to not throw food in the trash. That's, that's an easy thing to do, right? That's why I know this is big. Like,
1: it's something that we all can do every day that actually really matters. How do you think about behavior change, behavior modification, training consumers to adopt a new, different behavior?
0: I mean, it's actually kind of at the core of what Mill is doing. I and mean, today, the easiest thing to do at home with that dinner scrap, the thing on your plate, is to either throw it down the sink or in the trash. And that split second decision you make when you're standing over the sink with your plate, that's what's going to determine the entire trajectory of that food. Either it's going to go to landfill and turn into poison gas for the atmosphere, or you can do something different. And our theory of behavior change is that we can make it easy to do the right thing, and that will create the right incentives, and that will actually change the behavior. And like I think about like the early days of Nest, we added this green leaf to the thermostat and people would actually like, go and turn the dial and look for the leaf. And it's this little subtle thing, but you know, we ended up sending reports. Like how many leaves did you get this month? And people like, people were looking for the leaf. And over time, like all those leaves really added up to change. This feels like that. It's subtle, but actually like over time, there's really no going back to how we used to throw away food. Like this is just easier and better. Therefore you'll keep doing it.
1: How do you think about growth towards that infinite or aspirational total addressable market that is 10% drawdown on the climate side and all American households and restaurants and businesses? Or you know, How are you guys thinking about growth? Yes. So so today, we're primarily
0: concerned with like how do we get into many, as many homes as possible and reach as many people as possible? And that's primarily through word of mouth, right? by making a great experience that people would want to tell their friends about or like... The thing they want to show people when they have friends over. Like, oh, like you gotta check out this thing I got in my kitchen. That's a key driver of early growth. Kind of our next tier of growth that we've already started working on is partnership with large apartment buildings, multifamily, and cities themselves. You know, every apartment building has a trash system. And most buildings are actually looking for things that are new and cheaper and better. And no one likes stinky trash and it's a big cost driver. So if we could create a better solution that is less expensive than buildings will adopt it and you think about cities like every city part of their core responsibilities is to keep trash off the streets it's like the original kind of movement of having sanitary cities and for a long time we didn't have another option the only thing we could do was throw bags in bins or bags in the street and have people come pick it up once a week and we're creating honestly better and cheaper pathway and that helps cities save money but it also helps cities meet their climate goal. And that's I th- get like how we think we're going to drive this change. It's not just it's better for the planet. It. It's better for the planet, it's better for for people at home and it's cheaper.
1: Yeah. How much of product build is inherent to that word of mouth, that behavior change? That like how, how do you think about building products that encourage good habits? Well, look like I think especially for these daily rituals that are kind of ingrained in us.
0: Like every family has their own rituals when it comes to trash, and I think about like my house growing up, we had this like brown paper bag from Publix, and that was where all the recyclables went. So thinking about changing those rituals, it's critical to making this new way easier and better. Thinking about our origin of Mill and how we got started, Harry and I spent a lot of time talking to experts, like folks who ran waste programs for cities, folks who lived in this in this world for a long time, and. They said the thing that we've never been able to do is change people's behavior in their kitchen. And even in cities that are doing the right thing, like uh, one of our early city pilots is with the city of Tacoma in Washington. And Tacoma is doing everything right. They've been running a composting program. They pick up food waste every week. They've been doing it for almost a decade, but participation is pretty low. And when they ask, hey, like, why aren't you using our green bin? It's because it's gross. People like, are afraid of Norwegian brown rats or things like that. So like, ultimately, like, this is a behavior change and user experience problem. And that's why I got into this. Like, uh, It's not just enough to build infrastructure. We have to build infrastructure that's accessible. Are Norwegian brown rats a thing? I didn't know that was a thing. <laughs> uh, that, is, that is a thing in, uh, in the Pacific Northwest. They're all the Northwest. same to me. <laughs> I, I didn't know they were a thing either until we read the Tacoma survey data.
1: Yeah. But it's actually a fun, I mean, it's silly, but it's, it's a fun point. Like One of the things we've noticed at my house is obviously we're throwing out less and taking the trash out less because so much of the food's going to the composter. But also, because there's no food in the trash, living in a city where there is a rat situation, we're not seen in our backyard as much, which is great. So one thing we haven't talked about is the monetization side and you know you're building a company too you're not just building a product out of the goodness of your heart although it's a of that's doing great things in the world how do you think about aligning profit and purpose both from the product side from the company side personally this is the second time you've done it so this is clearly part of your ethos i think this is an area
0: where as a society we can spend a lot more time talking and today like wall street rewards profit and Profit drives more growth, blah, 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 you know, scalable. But like, the purpose side is really important. And I think if you had more boardrooms talking about purpose and profit together, and how to drive both forward, actually, that inherently can create positive change. And I think about the mill experience, tackling a big problem like food waste. If we could build a solution that is profitable, that could be in every home, we're going to be able to tackle a lot of the food waste problem. But you know... If, if this is something that needs a lot of capital or needs donations to drive, like then it's never going to get too big, and like we won't achieve our, our scale and our purpose. But you know, it's it's one where like we're very intentional about it. Like when we started the company, we started as a public benefit corporation, and it's not something we talk about very often. But it allows us as the management team to show our shareholders on board, like here, this is our purpose, and you know, you could judge us on our financial performance and our performance on our purpose.
1: Tell me a little bit about the pitch deck or the investors. Like, What is their reaction to that, or how do they envision this relationship? Well, I, I've been very selective. This is, again, like a lesson learned over the decades. We only
0: brought in investors in Mill who are mission-aligned, who are either climate investors or are investing in change. They're they're on the mission with us, and they, they're in it not just to make money, but they're also in it to see that change. And... That allows us to have different kinds of conversations. Whether it's like trading off a short-term objective for the long-term purpose, like we could have those kinds of conversations. And I think it, like, like this is really important when boards of companies, when the shareholders of companies are supportive of the mission, and especially like one day Mill might be a public company. Like thinking about like the quarterly grind of earnings, like we're going to do our earnings report but we're also going to do our purpose report and how we're doing along our mission.
1: Yeah. Do you see that as a trend among broader stakeholder constituencies? Do you think other companies are looking at it this way? Other investor uh, investors have this perspective? I think so. And like you know, you mentioned
0: the Apple example earlier on. Like this change is happening. Like there's no like hold, holding back this avalanche. Like we're going to have to decarbonize the economy. And that opportunity to do that is both an awesome opportunity for humanity and the planet but it's also going to create a lot of big businesses and i think about like the solar industry or the electric vehicle industry and like there's no going back to the gas powered vehicles those are in the past we're making this transition and the companies and boards that are getting on board with that are the ones that are going to make it
1: that's where they'll see the unicorn the next i mean there's you've heard this a lot in the last 2 years that the next generation of unicorns are going to be climate tech or clean tech, invariably. I I mean I, I think so too, both as like an entrepreneur, but also as an investor. The entire economy needs to decarbonize.
0: And like Mills is tackling food waste, but there are like hundreds of areas that we need to focus on to decarbonize. There's no silver bullets. There really is we have to do everything. And if the perspective is we have to do everything, That is a lot of change that we have to make in society and a lot of businesses that are gonna be created and some that are gonna not make
1: it. Yeah. You hinted at this, you said, you know, both as a mill, but also as an investor. You've looked at a bunch of cool stuff. You're involved with a ton of both philanthropic and corporate investments. Talk to us about what you're building there and and how that complements and and how you look at that side of your, your life.
0: Look, I think it's really important what we do with our time, but also what we do with our capital and with our votes too. I think they're all related actually. And after we sold Nest, my wife Swathi and I decided to also spend our capital on this mission as well. So we invest in mission forward companies, mostly around climate change, but we do some stuff around health as well, generally at the kind of the early catalytic stages. And we realized that, hey, like seed investing in climate is important, but like, oh, like, what about nonprofits? And like, what if someone's creating a movement? Who's the seed capital for them too? And then we decided to broaden our mandate to be a little bit for everything. And whether it's someone who has an idea for a a new way to decarbonize the economy and it's in research phases. Great, like we could give a donation to them to get started.
1: So you're seeing all the new cool things. What are some either technologies or companies that we should all look out for and keep an eye on until you think they're going to be really interesting and they're going to make a a big difference in the world? So I, I love these
0: areas that are overlooked. That's my passion. The things that we've forgotten about. And one of our insight portfolio companies is, is this company, Zero Acre Farms. And they are making low-carbon cooking oil that isn't created from harvesting plants. It's, it's cultured. And it's one of those things like, oh my gosh, it's a better oil. It doesn't create smoke in your kitchen. It's healthier for you. And it's better for the planet. Like, but no one thinks about cooking oil as a climate driver or like things like the Mono Tractor Company the diesel-powered industrial farming apparatus, like, that's going to decarbonize too. And shouldn't we also have electric vehicles on the farm? And there's, like, all these kinds of things that are, like, overlooked. But, like, yeah, they're going to change too.
1: Yeah, I think I probably know the answer. But I'm curious how you... What do you consider your motivations in life? To keep... What keeps you going every day? What are you excited by and kind of keeps you get with momentum?
0: I love working with great people that are, that are mission-aligned. And whether they're people... That I work with directly at Mill, who are sacrificing their careers to go and take a bet on food waste, or it's a aspiring entrepreneur who's working on taking CO two out of the air, which is like a whole other area that we can spend time talking on. Like, I just I love working with passionate people who are on the mission, and if anything, we need more of those folks.
1: Yeah, we kind of started talking a little bit about this. You know, there's. been some negative headlines. There's always negative headlines. The news is filled with them, and yet, the role of a of a founder, in a lot of ways, is to maintain kind of a hopeful perspective. And being an entrepreneur, I tend to think is an act of hope <laughs> underneath it. So, I'm curious how you remain positive, and how do you inspire kind of those in your in your ecosystem to to do so? How do you? I, I say the term I use is defeat defeatism.
0: Mm. I mean, having a good support network is really important. I'll just start there. Like maintaining good mental health, whether it's a good business partner, a good life partner, creating that that own balance in your life. It's really hard to be in a good mental state for your company if you aren't internally. It's so like also exercise, I put in that same category. Like I did a really poor job of maintaining my health in the last days, and I'm doing a much better job now. Like I get on a bike and I go out for two hours and that provides perspective. I think keeping the focus on the mission is also really important. Because even like dark days do come and there's there's some really hard times that come to any startup, but like reminding yourself why you're doing it. Yeah, that's, that's what gets me out of bed. Like the mission is more important than any day-to-day stress.
1: A huge thank you to Matt for taking the time to share his story with us today. I've been a huge fan of the product ever since I bought mine. If you're interested or want to learn more, visit mill.com. That's www.mill.com. This episode was produced by Will Gatchell and Jeff Rock. Executive produced by me with editing from reasonable volume. Special thanks to Consensus Creative Director Kate Tucker, Greg Herigel, and Patrick Gallagher. Consensus In Conversation can be found on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, YouTube, or wherever you listen. If you enjoyed the episode today, please leave us a like or rating. It really helps us out. And if you're interested in telling your story as a guest or just want to stay in the know, connect with me on LinkedIn. Consensus in Conversation is a podcast by Consensus Digital Media, produced in association with Reasonable Volume. All right, we'll see you next week.